0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. On the 9th of November 2022, Malaysia held its 15th general election. This election took place within an unprecedentedly open and fragmented political landscape. Instead of the usual two main coalitions contending as frontrunners, Malaysia now has three main coalitions, Barasa Nacional, Pakatan Harapan and Prikatan Nasional. But not one of these coalitions actually won enough seats to form government, and it was only after much jockeying around that Pakatan Harapan, led by Anwar Ibrahim, was able to cobble together enough support to form the so-called unity government. To help us make sense of the 2022 general elections in Malaysia, I'm joined on the SIAC Stories podcast today by Dr. Asmil Tayyip, Senior Lecturer at the School of Social Sciences, University Science Malaysia in Penang, Malaysia. Asmil has done extensive research on political Islam, social movements and local government politics, particularly in Indonesia and Malaysia. Previously, he was a Fulbright Fellow based at a Pasatran, or an Islamic boarding school, in South Kalimantan, and an Erasmus Mundus Fellow based at Humboldt University in Berlin. Currently, he is also a non-resident visiting research fellow at the ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute in Singapore and a visiting lecturer at Universitas Negri Malang in East Java. He's the author of Islamic Education in Indonesia and Malaysia, published by Rutledge in twenty eighteen which won the Colleagues' Choice Award for Social Sciences at the 2019 International Convention of Asia Scholars. Asmil also gave the Malaysia Country Update at CX 2022 Politics in Action Forum. Asmel, welcome to the SIAC Stories podcast.
0: Thank you for inviting me.
1: So, Malaysian politics has become incredibly complicated in the last four years. Since 2018, there have been three and now four new Prime Ministers almost 30 different political parties, many coalitions, too many to count, and plenty of backstabbing, betrayals and bickering. How did this complexity and instability inform the 2022 general elections?
0: The instability started in late February 2020 at the onset of the global COVID-19 pandemic. So when the Pakatan Harapan government fell, through backdoor dealings by some members of the coalition and also the opposition then, which consists of the Islamic political party, PASS, and then the Malay political party, AMNO. As soon as the PH government fell, so there was a vacuum of power, which is quickly filled in by the then opposition, which formed a coalition called Perikatan National or PN. The problem with PN was that it was not able to command a majority in the parliament. So what it did was just to claim that it has the majority is by acquiring statutory declarations from individual MPs, and then brought the SDs to the King so the King can verify that this coalition had the majority. The whole process was opaque. It was not transparent, it was definitely not in public because the parliament was closed, the coalition was not able to show its majority publicly to have confidence in the parliament. So that actually created a lot of this instability, this jockeying for power because it's not just this coalition claiming to have majority, but Anwar Ibrahim, our current Prime Minister right now, also at the time claimed to have the majority. So there are a lot of these backstabbings, a lot of backroom dealings behind the scene, claiming to have the majority. There's a lot of fragmentations as well as politicians jump from one party to the other. ultimately led to the passing of the anti-hopping law, which was passed this year to prevent individual politicians from changing their parties. So that was basically what has been happening in Malaysian politics in the past three years, uh, almost three years.
1: What was the mood like leading up to the election? Was there a great sense of excitement about, you know, finally having the chance for a reckoning and for the public to vote again on these new coalitions that had formed?
0: Just from my own sense from my own observation, I didn't see the same level of enthusiasm that we see in 2018. I think people are generally fatigued with the political process. A lot of people were quite pessimistic that an election can solve all the political problems that Malaysia has gone through the past two and a half years. They don't see election as will provide stability precisely because of the fragmentation. You know, as you mentioned earlier, there are so many political parties and even the three major coalitions contending for the seats, which is unprecedented in Malaysian history because there are usually two. many people doubt there will be stability after the election. Uh, there will be a hung parliament.
1: And so those fears, they were quite well founded to a degree because In Malaysia, 112 seats are needed to form government, but no coalition actually managed to achieve that minimum. So there was a splintering of the vote. Can you tell us how the seats fell and whether there are any that are still being counted or still in question?
0: So no coalition managed to get the needed 112 seats. So what happened was the town parliament. So actually the one seat remained unfilled until today because one of the candidates for the parliament is in Padang Serai in Kedah, the northern state in Malaysia, bordering Thailand. The candidate passed away a few days before the election. There wasn't enough time for the Election Commission to approve new candidates and to change the ballot paper and all those things. But that particular parliamentary district has been postponed. So the seats, as you mentioned, now divided amongst these three coalitions. So the Pakatan Harapan, PH, which is led by Anwar Ibrahim, has 82 seats. And then Perikatan National, which is the former ruling coalition before the election, has 73 seats. And then uh, Barista National, BN, which is a long ruling coalition in Malaysia led by AMNO, the Malay political party has 3D seats. So what happened after the election was this intense negotiation between all these coalitions, including coalitions from Sabah and Sarawak, from Malaysian Borneo.
1: I wanted to ask you about the role of the Sabah and the Sarawak coalitions, actually, because a lot of people were saying that they were going to be playing the kingmaker role. Did this end up eventuating? Did they play the kingmaker role as expected?
0: Yes, they did, actually, because let's say if two out of the three major coalitions decided to get together, it would still not be enough to form a simple majority coalition, which is 112 seats. So they still need to get support from the Malaysian Borneo coalitions, uh, especially in Sarawak, which can provide, uh, I think, like 30 seats to the coalition. So they're definitely the playmaker, especially the ones uh, the GPS coalition in Sarawak, which is a coalition of various political parties in Sarawak. So the GPS in Sarawak was basically waiting out coalition will emerge from all the negotiations in the peninsula. At the end, it was the BN and PH that managed to get together. And then the GPS in Sarawak threw their support behind this newly formed coalition or rather the the unity government.
1: So, Pakatan Harapan has managed to partner or form an alliance with Barisan Nacional. So, that means that the opposition is Pakatan Nacional. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So, let's talk about each of these parties and these coalitions. If we think about Pakatan Harapan, they actually won the 2018 general elections because they were able to get almost 30% of the Malay votes voters who would otherwise have voted for UMNO or PAS, which is the Malaysian Islamic Party. Did Pakatan Harapan manage to replicate this feat in 2022? Did they manage to engage the Malay voters?
0: Unfortunately, no, they did not. Because in two thousand eighteen, uh, the Malay voters who traditionally were AMNO supporters were not able to vote for AMNO because of the Najib Razak factor. You know, the former prime minister who is currently in prison right now for corruption charges. So these Malay voters had no alternative but to vote for Pakatan Harapan for PH because it's the only available, only viable alternative. Especially when the Malay opposition party, then Bursatu, which was led by the former Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad, was part of PH. So, most Malays voted for PH in, in the 2018 election. Many Malays, I mean, as you said, 30%, I mean, still a minority, because AMNO still received the most, you know, about 40% of the votes from the Malay back then. So, for this election, because there is Perikatan National, PN, which is a viable Malay alternative party for those who were dissatisfied or unhappy with AMNO to support, you know. So these, the, the very same Malays who voted for PH because they were unhappy with AMNO now they have PN. So they didn't have to vote for PH anymore. That showed in the, in the percentage of vote, uh, Malay votes that PH received In this election, which is um, right now, the estimate is about slightly over 10%. So we were talking a huge drop in Malay from 30% to about 10, 11%. So there's 20% drop of Malay votes that ultimately went to PN.
1: So PN is often seen as a, a good Islamic alternative and you've described its achievements in terms of it being the cleanest alternative. Can you elaborate a little bit on Purikatan Nacional's achievements and, and the reasons for them?
0: Yeah, this is the message that PN has consistently emphasized throughout the campaign period. I followed campaigns in a few states in Malaysia, so in, during the two weeks campaign period, and especially in states where PN had a strong presence, in Kelantan for example, I spent a week there leading up to the election. And I can see, you know, the message when I attend this cerama, you know, this public talks, the message they, they try to get out to the voters is that we, PN, you know, is the credible alternative because they make this juxtaposition you know, saying, okay, on one hand, if you vote for BN, for Barisan National, UMNO, you are voting for Zaid Hamidi to become the prime minister. Uh, so Zaid Hamidi is currently facing 47 charges of corruption and money laundering. So he has all these court cases, so a tainted figure. And then on the other hand, PN also say that if you vote for PH. It means that you're voting for DAP, so which is the Chinese-dominated party component of PH, so which has been long demonized you know, within the Malay society. And also, end saying that DAP is also not as clean as they portray themselves. The former Secretary General of DAP um, also had court cases on corruption. So they're not clean. And also the other side, AMNO BN, also not clean. So the only clean alternative here is PN, right? Parikata National. And also they give example, PN candidates give example that look at the, the PN government that has been in power for the past 30 months. You know, there's not a single corruption cases. And then also, the, when I was in Kelantan, which is a state that's been governed by PAS, you know, the Islamic party for 32 years continuously. They also say that, you know, look at here, you know, PAS has governed Kelantan for 32 years and still not a single corruption case. So we are the cleanest alternative here. So why, why vote for these two corrupted parties when you have an obviously a cleaner one that you can vote your conscience?
1: Well, let me ask you about PAS, which, as I mentioned, is the Malaysian Islamic Party and part of Purikatan Nasional. How have its fortunes changed since 2018?
0: Yeah, PAS, I think, emerged as the the biggest winner in this election, I think for for several factors. So one is going by the numbers. PAS gained 18 seats in the last election, in 2018 election, and in this election, pass managed to win 49 seats so it's a huge leap for pass so and that's because of several factors so one is definitely pass is very good at organizing part of the of pn brigade national ran very good campaign especially on social media on tiktok particularly targeting young voters and then also the clean message that i've mentioned earlier I think resonate well with voters because especially among Malay voters who disaffected Amno supporters who cannot bring themselves to vote for Amno, but now they have a more credible and cleaner alternative. And also, I think another factor is that PAS actually campaigned on, on the two logos in its strongholds in the northeastern states of Kelantan and Terengganu and northern states in Kedah, PAS actually campaigned on its party logo, which is the, the moon. But then outside of his stronghold, PAS actually campaigned under Rikata National logo, PN. So I think they actually allowed PAS to win in places, in states where it was traditionally weak. I think because, you know, people look at the, when voters actually look at the parties, many people don't even know the, the candidates who are running they only see the party that the candidates are affiliated with, you know. So if they made up their mind, say said, OK, I'm going to vote for PN, I don't care who's running for PN, PAS candidate or be it from PAS or from Prasatu, which is another, you know, the component of PN. So I think that, that that's what happened in states outside of PAS's strongholds.
1: Let's talk about Pakatan Harapan now, of which Anwar Ibrahim is the leader and has been successful in emerging as the overall winner by cobbling together this coalition following the election. He's been a key figure in Malaysian politics for a long time and has gone from prisoner to prime minister, having been charged and imprisoned twice for sodomy and corruption. What does this victory mean on a personal level for him?
0: I think the, it's a vindication of his long years of struggle, long years of travails and suffering. I think it's, it's a vindication of that. I think long overdue. I mean, he has been delayed several times throughout the years. I mean, he was long seen as a successor for Mahathir back in the 90s. Yeah, and then we know what happened. The reformasi, and he was sacked from the government. And then even in 2018, right, when when PH managed to gain control of the federal government and then Mahade became the Prime Minister again, but with the understanding that Anwar would replace him, would succeed him after two years, which Mahade did not honor that unstated agreement which led to the Sheraton move, you know, these back dealings between all these politicians that led to the downfall of the PH government. So I think after all that, you know, and then to finally become the 10th Prime Minister of Malaysia, it's, you know, it's a vindication of, I guess, a satisfying ending for him.
1: Hopefully it's also a beginning <laughs> as well. So politically speaking, what will Anwar need to do to prove his government's majority support?
0: So that's what, what he's doing. I mean, he already promised that the first, uh, so the parliament will reconvene on the 19th of December and the first order of business is to have a vote of confidence for his government. So it, we will see on the 19th of December, which is uh, not too long from now.
1: Do you expect the vote to go his way? Yeah,
0: I think he seems pretty confident. I think he needs to do is to maintain the support that he's currently getting from AMNO whose president is Zaid Hamidi, you know, this tainted, corrupt, controversial, you know, that causing a lot of unhappiness among many PH supporters, you know, when when he was included in the in the government, even in the recent announcement of cabinet, you know, he was made a deputy prime minister.
1: Yeah, and so th- this is Zahid Hamidi we're talking about, who's currently on trial for 47 charges of corruption and money laundering. I mean, it's causing unhappiness within Pakatan Harapan. Do you think it will affect the unity government's fortunes, having this sort of character in such a leadership role?
0: I think PH supporters generally can accept this compromise for now because they see it as the necessary evil for Anwar to become the prime minister, to form a stable government. So this is what needs to be done. At least, at least a stopgap measure. So they see that making a deal with Zay Hamidi is what's necessary now. And then for him to ensure that Zai Hamidi can maintain the full support of Amno, the whole party behind him, in order to make this unity government coalition viable. So that's the key: appeasing him and also his supporters within Amno. What Anua is trying to do right now. So the understanding is that. Once the majority has been established, then you can start to focus on other things. And even when it comes to Zait Hamidi's court cases, there is a promise with, from Anwar that there will be no interference from the government and then also to allow justice to take its course. But for now, I think it's just to keep Zaid Hamidi a peace so that Anwar will remain within this unity government coalition.
1: The final point I wanted to mention and to ask you about is the role of younger voters this time round, because this election witnessed the impacts of the lowering of the voting age from 21 to 18 for the first time. So we saw a lot of first-time voters, and we also saw the introduction of automatic voter registration. What are your preliminary impressions about the impact of these changes?
0: I think the preliminary results that came out, we're seeing a quite a high turnout from the young voters which is a good sign. I think the what was came as a surprise or, or least expected is the voting patterns among young voters. There was this understanding, this kind of belief, I guess, that young voters tend to be progressive, tend to be less focused on ethno-religious issues, less focused on identity politics, but that was not the case. Many PN supporters, um, voters, uh, many, actually many young young voters um, voted for PN, uh, especially young Malay voters. So we're talking about uh, young conservative Malay voters. You know, regardless of where they are, either they can be urban, they can be rural. So we're seeing similar voting patterns for now. So I think that came as a bit of a surprise. And then I think the, this is the due... To the social media campaign ran by PN, which is I, I think was very effective, especially on TikTok, where uh, many of these young people spend their time, you know, much of their time. You know, so all these videos by PN and and especially appropriating latest trends. So um, I think that that was really effective, even to the point that many pundits, you know, people calling this election the TikTok election. It's proven, you know, you can see the results, the young people, especially many of them tend to gravitate towards PN. So one point I'd like to make, I'd like to add to the to the voting pattern of the especially young Malay voters, uh, 18 to 20 years old. You know, we're talking about generation that's been brought up, especially born and raised with Islamic resurgence in Malaysia that started in late 70s, early 80s. So we're talking about the product of this islamization so which permeates every aspect of the society this shows in the way they, they they think because in june this year so merdeka center which is the one the, the main polling agencies organizations uh, in malaysia and sisters in islam which is uh, another the women advocacy ngo did a nationwide survey on malay youth from 15 to 30 years old to gauge their perception on various aspects of life, you know, religion, economy, democracy, politics, corruption, and all these things. And the, one of the findings is that, you know, this group, this demographic is so conservative, especially when it comes to religion, when it comes to relation with people from other religion, other ethnic groups, very, very Malay and Islam centric. You know, this fifteen to thirty years old Malays. I think the kind of conservative mindset now you know, being borne out in the election results you can see many of them overwhelmingly voted for PN, which is the basically Malay Islamic coalition. I wouldn't say a miscalculation by PH or by those who push to lower the voting age, those people who, who, the prime movers, I guess, behind Undi 18, which is the groups that push for lowering the voting age from 21 to 18, you know, these are mostly urban based. I think they didn't see that the young people now, you know, uh, empowered, given this right to vote, uh, would vote for this Malay-Islam coalition.
1: It's certainly got a lot of moving parts. It has over the past four years since 2018, even more so since 2020. And with the introduction of these first-time voters and these younger voters, adding even more complexity to the electoral landscape in Malaysia. Asmel, thank you so much for explaining the general election results to us. And we really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the SEAC Stories podcast. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, for talking to you, Nellie.
1: Wonderful. Thanks so much as well. You've been listening to SIAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SIAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.